You're listening to Connect Communities Podcast, recorded live in Stamford, Connecticut. If you'd like to know more about our community, stop by our website at www.connectcommunity.tv. Enjoy the message. You know what? I want to bring you a message that I shared with our own church just in the last couple of weeks. And uh, the title, if you're taking notes, is simply One. I want to speak to you about, about one this morning. I pray it's going to be timely for you like it has been for me and for our community. Let me set it up by saying this. It's, it's easy to imagine that God is like the ultimate big picture guy, right? I mean, do you get any more big picture than, than God? He's got a universe to, re, to run. I was trying to estimate how many prayer requests per minute God might be dealing with. I have no idea. It's probably millions, though, right? I mean, he's got a lot of things going on. This is the God who spoke, and there was light. The Bible calls him Alpha and Omega. In other words, he's the beginning and the end. He's the Ancient of Days. He's the Almighty God of Heaven's armies. And the Word says that He is worthy to receive all the glory, all the honor, all the power, and all the praise forever and ever. Amen. It's like the big picture guy. And there's a, a story in the Old Testament, a man by the name of Job who goes through just about the worst possible imaginable season. It's like everything that could go wrong did go wrong, he lost. He was grieving the loss of family members. His you know, property and possessions are falling apart. His health is, is, is ruined. And in the middle of it all, he's getting bad advice. You ever been there? Bad advice from well-meaning friends. And he's musing on, yeah, where's God and what's happening in the middle of all this? He's a righteous man, but he just loses perspective. And God steps in and speaks to him in like the ultimate big picture kind of a perspective. I'll just read you just a snippet. I mean, it's gone on chapter after chapter of Job's, you know, verbal processing and his friends trying to help, but not so much. And then God speaks. This is what God says, Job 35 or 38 Verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? How many are already thinking, Job's thinking, uh oh. <laughs> I may have misspoken, Lord, if only I could walk that back. Have you ever been there where you suddenly realize all of my words and so little knowledge? You know, that's where Job's probably feeling. And God says to him, brace yourself like a man and I will question you and you shall answer me. And then he just launches into all of these like largely rhetorical questions, I guess. He says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Or who, measured, who, who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors in bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by its edges and shake the wicked out of it on and on and on. Imagine Job just standing there thinking, I got my perspective back. It's like God speaks to him for the perspective of his enormous power, almighty, all-knowing, ever-present. God speaks to him from that perspective. And that is true. That is, that is who God is. And yet, boy, isn't the Bible full of these beautiful both and Seeming paradoxes, seeming contradictions. God is, in one sense, this ultimate big picture guy, if I could put it that way. And yet, 
Our God is deeply personal. So I was just recently uh, having my devotions, and in one morning, I read the whole book of Philemon, which sounds like an achievement, unless you remember that. It's like one chapter. It's not even a long chapter, right? So don't go thinking I'm too spiritual. I read it this one morning, though. I read the whole thing. You know, what an achievement. And uh, as I was reading it, I noticed several things. One of them, one of them was, how do you pronounce this book? And I was thinking, maybe it's an Australian thing. I, I struggle to pronounce all sorts of things, and my children pointed out regularly. We have four kids, and they love making fun of my accent, which three of them used to have, but it's long gone now. Anyway, so I, you know, I, I was thinking about the name, and I asked people at the office in case it was just me. No, nobody can agree. Is it Philemon, Philemon? So I did what any good Australian would do. I shortened it, Phil. So, you know, even if you don't have a background in church, it's all right this morning, you're on safe ground. We're going to call him Phil for the uh, remainder of the message. Does that work? So I noticed something about the book of Phil. And uh, one of the things that I noticed was that the Apostle Paul had written this book for the sake of, of a man by the name of Onesimus. It's written to a man called Philemon for the sake of a man called Onesimus, who was an escaped slave. And the slave, somewhere along the way, is being connected to Paul. He's received Christ as his Lord and Savior, and he's gonna return to his former slave owner. And so Paul writes this letter because it, as it happens, he's impacted Phil's life too. And this is, I want to just read a little excerpt of it for you this morning from Philemon, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 8. It says, this is Paul, by the way, just listen to his influence. This is interesting for me just as an exercise, like a template for persuasive writing. The Apostle Paul does not pull any punches in this letter to try and ensure that Onesimus is safe. This is what he says, just one section of the letter. He says, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I, I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner of Christ in Jesus, uh, he says that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. He says, I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to have kept him with me so he could take your place in helping me, hint, hint. <laughs> while I'm in chains for the gospel, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent. So any favor would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Now on the letter goes, and he sends this letter with Onesimus to try and ensure his safe passage. It's clear to me that Paul is pulling out all the stops. If there's a button, he's going to press it to try and influence the outcome of this situation. In fact, later in the letter, he says, by the way, if Onesimus owes you any debt, I'll pay it. And then he adds, but don't forget, you owe me your very life, right? I mean, it's like, and then he signs up the letter by saying, prepare a guest room, I'm coming to visit, right? I'm going to check up on what you do with this letter. But you know, that isn't what really got my attention about the letter, although I did laugh a few times along the way out loud. What got my attention is this. I started thinking about the reason for the letter, and I noticed something that's a little unusual. Paul wrote a lot of letters in the Bible. You know, 
This one seems unusual to me because as far as we can tell, Paul never knew anyone else was going to read it. You know, a good number of his letters are written to a whole church or to a city or there's instructions in there that say to pass it on or to read it aloud or to share it with others, but not this one. So I'm thinking, Paul doesn't realize other people are going to read this letter as far as we know, let alone that billions of people would still read it thousands of years later. And so I, I started wondering, why is it in the Bible? Why is it in the Bible? If it's a personal letter that for all intents and purposes is from one guy to another guy for the sake of a third guy, why did the Father have the Holy Spirit in, inspire the early church to include this letter in the Bible, in the canon of Scripture for you and I to still be reading? Why is it there? Well, you know what my conviction is? As I dwelt on that, as I thought about it, I thought, what's the message of this letter? You know what it is for me? is that I think this beautiful letter under, underlines just so powerfully for you and I the reminder of how much our God cares about the one. That he would take a whole book of the Bible devoted really for the sake of one guy to remind us all that God sees the one. He cares about the one and his heart is for the one. He cares about slaves. He cares about the hurting. He cares about your friend. He cares about your family member. He cares about the hurting in Houston right now. He cares about your neighbors and your co-workers that desperately need a savior too. And consider, if you want to go a little deeper, the day that this was written in, in a, in a, in a time in, in history when slavery was considered normal and slaves were considered property, consider the social pecking order of the day where a slave was in society and who the Apostle Paul was. You know, formerly he was like the Pharisee of Pharisees, the who's who in the Jewish world. Now he's the Apostle Paul, writing two-thirds of the New Testament. And here's this man who in the social order of the day is like the who's who, writing a letter on behalf of not just an ordinary man, but a slave. And in fact, an escaped slave. Just the implication of the fact that he might have a debt to pay and that the Apostle Paul had to write a letter to ensure he was safe, suggests to you and I that he didn't even leave legally or on good terms with his slave master in those days. Why do I make the distinction that he's a slave? Because their society did. And I think if the events in our nation, even in the last couple of weeks, have taught us anything, is we would like to think we've come a long way in discriminating against people on the basis of their station in life or the color of their skin. But the truth is, this revelation is as needed today, amen? Here today in 2017 as it was then, because you know what Paul does that's maybe more revolutionary than writing the letter? Is he ends the letter by saying that he can receive Anesimus, his former slave, back to him, quote, as a dear brother in the Lord and a fellow man. Isn't it easy to miss that revolutionary thought? Not less than, but equal to. This is how Galatians 3, 26 to 29 puts it. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Galatia, he says, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. You know, to pause for a second. You know, I heard somebody say just recently, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's what we're seeing happening here. We're seeing Jesus bringing the great equalizer. We're seeing the gospel being good news to people in every walk of life, from every tribe and tongue, amen? People of every background. And the, the apostle Paul, he says, in Christ Jesus, by the way, that's the key to all of this. It's in Christ, it's in Christ that all of these things are possible. You are all, listen, children of God through faith. 
For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Listen to this, this is huge. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You know, I wrote this message a few weeks ago on a Thursday. No idea that on Saturday the events in Charlottesville would unfold. I find myself standing before our church that Sunday, speaking on these very verses, underlining the value of every one. God's Word. You know what I know about God's Word? It is timeless, but it's also timely. Have you experienced that? His Word is unchanging, yet because it's not a textbook or just words in a Bible, but it's living and powerful, it can turn up in our circumstances. His promises for that very moment or the very thing that you're facing alive and powerful. You see, Jesus calls us to love the one. This is a big deal. He calls us to love the one and he models it in himself. In fact, he says in Luke 15, verses three to seven, one of his most famous parables, known by those who maybe never go to church and don't follow Jesus, they know this parable. Jesus says, suppose one of you has 100 sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. You know what, you and I need to get a fresh revelation of this morning. Before any part of you might be thinking, if you've been following Jesus for a while, like, yeah, 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 I know, I know, wait for a minute. Can we be reminded of the depth of the Father's passion and devotion to chase after His lost ones. He's a good Father. He's a good Father, and He will not rest until He's found them. And all of heaven rejoices, the Bible says, over just one. Amen? Over just one. Now, I find comfort in that, and I bet many of you do too, because at one moment or another, in weeks or months or years gone by, many of us were that one that heaven stopped and partied and celebrated for. I was one of those ones. Amen for that. But you know, the search is still on. In fact, it says in Matthew 18, similar parable in Matthew's gospel says this. He says, what do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 in the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. Listen to what verse 14 says. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. He's not willing. That is not his will, in other words. It is not his will that any. He doesn't, he doesn't want to lose one. So here's my question for you this morning. We might all be on the same page here. Yeah, God loves the one, but let's, let's do a little heart search for a minute. I wonder if I secretly resent his mission. I mean, now that I'm safe and sound, now that I have the privilege of, of being one of his found ones, do I kind of hope that my Father in heaven will be like a divine vending machine, dispensing blessings for me, 
and making my life more comfortable. In fact, I was a beneficiary of the search party, but is there some part of me that, that wishes God would turn all of that search and rescue energy onto blessing me and caring for me? Not that these things are mutually exclusive. I'm not debating for a moment that God's desire is to bless you. But do we understand the Father's heart? Do we understand that He burns for His lost ones, that His heart yearns for them to be returned home? Do I, do I wonder if the church and all of its resources would be better spent instead of search, all that search and rescue stuff, more programs for me? In fact, let me ask this question. Who does the church even exist for? I wonder who I think the church exists for. I mean, is it, like a, is it a Christian club? Is that what we have here? It's a Christian club with a whole range of tantalizing products and services for members. I mean, I'm being sarcastic to make a point this morning, right? Can we deal with that? That's all right, isn't it? Not too early. I'm trying to make a point. Is that what we think the church is? And again, no argument that we wanna bless people and have programs to meet needs, but is that our primary role as the church? Are we a Christian club or are we a rescue boat? Hello? Or are we a halfway house? Are we a rescue team going out on the Father's behalf? In fact, William Temple famously put it this way. He said, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. <laughs> That's fantastic. The only society. What other society exists on earth for the benefit of non-members? But at that is the very mission of the church. We exist for those outside the church. But I wonder if I have the same perspective the Father does, or if I find myself so consumed with the day-to-day -day needs of His found ones that I have no margin left in my own life for His lost ones, the wanderers. Because the world's way is more like two out of three ain't bad, right? <laughs> That's more the world's way. Or at least it would be fair to say that the world would consider 99% is pretty much next to perfection as a score. But apparently heaven doesn't think that way. Because heaven's economy is 99, get left safe in order to go after the one. They're not happy with that. You know, I'm blessed, man, I, I can't tell you how much it blesses me to come and see just over two years into the journey of this community, how much has grown and grown and grown. Praise God, Amen. Praise God, many have come to Christ. Praise God, marriage is restored. Praise God, new connect groups being planted and all of these things, amen to that. But you know what? I suspect the Father still counts you the same way. I still suspect that heaven, even, you know what? If it becomes hundreds upon hundreds, thousands upon thousands, and praise God if it does, I suspect heaven will still count you one, 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 one. Now, we've got cities to reach and nations to change. So we need to grow our churches and amen to that. But even as we do, let's never lose sight of the Father's heart about the one. Every one matters. Not just everyone matters. Every one matters to the Father's heart. Let's always be about the one. So as I, as I was sharing on this very thought just recently to our staff, just calling them back, because you can get busy even working for a church, you would think that that would mean automatically you were always thinking about the loss and always on mission. No, you can get buried in email and to-do lists and the task in front of you and forget what we're actually doing here. I was sharing this with our staff about the one, keeping a focus on the one. In fact, we even took a time of prayer. At the end, I just said, everybody, pens down. Be quiet just for a minute. I want every, we're gonna take two minutes of silence and we're gonna open our own hearts to the Holy Spirit Holy Spirit, speak to each of us about the one. 
Put, give me a face, give me a name of somebody that is hurting right now, that needs an encouraging email, that maybe hasn't been in church for a little while, that just a loving phone call or a text message might make the difference. And we did that. Think about who the ones are in our world, church. There's something I want to add to this to help us hold two truths in tension this morning. Because we, we often, as we think about the one, we forget that Jesus added a second prayer. And that is, you know, not only that Jesus calls us to love the one, but he also called us to be one. He calls us to love the one, church, but he also calls us to be one. In fact, right before he's arrested, and crucified, he prays first for himself to be glorified. He prays for his disciples on the eve of the greatest test of their lives. And then he prays for you and I. This prayer in John 17, 20 to, 20, uh, to 23 says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and me. What's his prayer? That all of them may be one. Father, just as you're in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so they may be brought to complete unity. Listen, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I notice that it's only in him, Jesus says. It's in him that we can be one. And what does he mean when he prays for you and I, for the body of Christ, for us to be one, those that believe? What is he praying that our unity would look like? He's, his prayer is that we would be one as they are one. He says, in other words, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune mystery nature of God, in the same way that God himself is one, that you and I would be one. And you know what the, he says the power of that is? Is that when we are one, the world will believe. When we are one, the world will believe. You know what? The opposite is also true. And when the church divides, when churches attack each other and, and Christians are being shot by friendly fire, when hypothetically Christians are attacking churches, say during a flood, for example, just saying, what do you think the testimony to our world might be about the message that we carry to the world. See, we're not only individuals. We are one, but we are also one. We are not only individuals with a God-given right to my opinion on everything on social media, amen, but I am also part of the body of Christ. I also serve the King's agenda, and at His pleasure, I play a part in the body. So church, Let's value the individual, but never cross into individualism. Isn't it so easy for the value system of our world, like consumerism or individualism to creep into the church where we make that step that seems so small from God's all about the one to it's all about me, which is not quite the same thing, is it? It's a small but important step. We gotta value our unity, amen, in the body of Christ. Value diversity, and celebrate that diversity in the context of unity. That's only possible in Christ, where there is no longer slave, nor free, Jew, amen, nor Gentile, male and female, but one in Christ. We can embrace the beautiful tension of difference. Come on. The beautiful tension of difference. Obviously, there are many expressions of diversity, but in days like these, I think instantly of racial diversity. I know our church, like yours, is a deeply multi-ethnic church. In fact, we did a survey late last year 
And our church that we know of already represents over 40 nations. Well, praise God for that. But you know, if you've been in church longer than five minutes, there's a chance that you'll experience tension in the difference, right? Personality, back, backgrounds, you know, different beliefs, voting different ways, all the things, right? All the things. Even in the context of community where we've got our eyes on Jesus and we're building the same thing together, it can get complicated. I mean, it probably never happens at Connect Community because you guys are such saints up here in Connecticut, right? But at least in my church down in New York City, let me tell you, it's complicated. It's complicated. We misunderstand each other and we offend each other. Even sometimes without realizing it, we offend each other. And then you can go down this path where you think, wouldn't it be easier if we just you know, had church where everybody looked the same, thought the same, believed the same? But wouldn't we have to settle for being a subculture or even worse, a monoculture? Wouldn't we have to be some little enclave of sameness? And do you think heaven is gonna look anything like that at all? I mean, talk about diversity. Heaven's gonna have it all. My prayer is that your community like ours would embrace the beautiful tension of that difference, love each other, hear each other, understand each other, find the common ground in Jesus and love and see each other, even in the moments when we don't understand. We, we as J.D. mentioned, just recently planted a liberty community in Manzini, Swaziland in Southern Africa. Well, down there, their idea of diversity is, yay, we've got some white people in the church. So right, it's all, it's all about diversity is contextual to where you are, right? But it's the same picture, it's the same body that we're building. Let me, let me repeat one last verse and the worship team can come, come join me. I, I read it earlier, but I wanna emphasize something different from Galatians 3. As we believe together, not only to see the one, but as we believe together to be one. See, Jesus said, in Christ Jesus, so Paul said, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither is there male and female. Listen, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You know what I love about that? Is all in one move. In these few short verses, Paul celebrates diversity and unity together. He celebrates equality, and in that, you know what he says? He says, we are heirs. You know, we were this and this, this and this, but we are now heirs, plural, together in Christ. He says at the end of this passage, he says, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He says earlier in verse 26, you are children, plural, of God through faith. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. But then do you know what he says? We are many, and yet we are one. He says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know what my prayer is? Come on, team. You know what my prayer is? My prayer is today that we as a church, frankly, we as individuals, would stir up the Father's heart again for the one. And that we together would commit afresh again today to being one in order that the world would see the good news is true. Amen.